Good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you and to be delivering the Word of God to you this morning as Pastor Don is away, uh, delivering a message uh, for a friend who is being ordained today. And so um, he asked if I would share with you this morning. And uh, though we just began a new series, as you know, in the book of James, we will be uh, taking a step away from that. We'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 this morning. Before we do so, let's come before the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your love for us in spite of us. In spite of our sin, we are so undeserving, Lord, and yet you have loved us with an everlasting love through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we come here this morning to celebrate. And as we consider the great truths from your word, Lord, the great truths of your gospel, I pray, Lord, that you would open up our our eyes and our hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. And that we would grow together as a church in our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. And that 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 gospel hope would would drive us to proclaim your name and the good news to anyone that you would bring our way, no matter what the cost. And so we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and look into this this morning. And we ask that your spirit would be at work as I deliver the word this morning, as well as for all of the teachers and children's ministry, Lord. We pray that we would deliver your word with accuracy, with clarity, and that your spirit would be at work moving upon the hearts of all who hear. It's in Christ's name we pray and for his glory. Amen. So... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This morning we're going to look at the gospel-driven cost That is the cost of being a disciple of Christ for the purpose, driven by, and for the purpose of proclaiming the greatest good news that could ever come to man. And this letter comes to the Thessalonian believers as a result of Paul's second missionary journey. He had just preached to the Philippians in Philippi, where he was imprisoned and he was run out of town. From there he goes to Thessalonica, where he preaches there, and we know that both Jews and Greeks responded positively to the gospel there. Eventually, uh, the Thessalonian Jews, who did not believe, uh, attacked the believers and attacked Paul. And Paul is sent away by night to Berea, which isn't too far from Thessalonica. Now, when the Thessalonian Jews find out that he's in Berea preaching the gospel there, they're not happy about it. And so they go down to Berea, and they stir up the crowds there. And at that point, Paul is, he's sent off to Athens uh, by boat. He sets, sets sail for Athens, which is much further away. And while Paul is in Athens, he receives word 
that false teachers were potentially influencing the Thessalonian believers in harmful ways. And so Paul sends Timothy back to uh, Thessalonica, and he wants him to encourage the saints, and, and he's asking that he would send a report back as to how they're doing. And thankfully, he sends back a good report of the believers there. And this letter is the first of two letters written to the Thessalonians in response to that report. And what we see in these letters that Paul writes to the Thessalonians is that he cared deeply for the Thessalonian believers. In chapter 1, verse 6, we see that they received the gospel with much joy amidst affliction. And they not only received the gospel with joy, but what we see in verses 7 to 10 is that they became an example to all the churches throughout Macedonia. And so they were an example. And our passage here in, in chapter 2, verse 9, falls in the middle of a section where Paul goes on to give a defense for the integrity of his ministry in the face of opposition and these false teachers. And Paul is defending himself as a true minister of the gospel who came to deliver God's word amidst much affliction as opposed to these false teachers who are nothing more than imposters who are seeking personal fame and fortune. They had greedy motives, impure motives. And so Paul is giving a defense of his ministry to the believers there to encourage them. And by giving a defense like this, and, and we see this elsewhere in Second Corinthians, we see the same thing where, where Paul is defending. He is endeavoring to defend himself as a minister of the gospel. And by doing this, he not only shows believers then, but believers for us today, that he was genuinely an apostle of Christ. That his letters, that they're true. That they're inspired, inerrant, authoritative. And so he gives a defense. That defense is helpful for us today to have confidence in God's word. But also, what it gives us is an example to follow. And we know that this example is not his own, but it's that of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so that example that he gives us here in his word is that example that has been given to him by Christ himself. We follow so long as someone follows Christ. And so that's what we see here. It's an example for us. And this example is not limited to pastors or elders and church leaders. This is an example for all believers to follow. If you are a believer, you are a witness to the gospel, whether here at church, whether you're a parent in the home, whether it's in the workplace, or if you're a student at school, wherever you might be, wherever God has you, he's called you to be a witness for the gospel. He's called you to lead a gospel-driven life. And as we know, that gospel-driven life often comes with a cost. So verse 9 of chapter 2 gives us a peek into one of Paul's many costs for the sake of the gospel. And it's prefaced in verses 7 to 8, if you, if you look there, with an analogy 
of a nursing mother who cares for the needs of her children. Now, a picture of a mother with her baby simply cannot be adequately described with words. I've had the wonderful privilege, as you know, of watching my wife deliver five children into this world. I have seen the way that she selflessly exhausts herself throughout the pregnancy, the labor, the delivery, and in the nurturing of each of our children each and every day thereafter. We were discussing a couple of days ago over the last nine years since our firstborn, she, she was pregnant with our firstborn. How many years in the last nine years uh, has she been either pregnant or nursing a child? And we figured out that she has been pregnant or nursing a child for eight of the last nine years. If you want to give her applause again for that, please feel free. <clears throat> A nursing mother gives of herself freely, sacrificially, and lovingly so that her child may grow and flourish in this world. And the picture of a nursing mother with her children is one of the most beautiful pictures of love and sacrifice that God has given to man. Amen? Yeah. And this is the picture that Paul gives here in verses 7 and 8. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you. Now he's going to interpret. He gives an analogy, and he's going to give you the spiritual interpretation and meaning of giving the analogy of a nursing mother. He says, we were ready to share with you two things. He says, not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. And so Paul exhausts himself, this sets up the verse that we are going to dig into, that Paul exhausts himself to share the gospel and to share his own life. Why? Because of his love for them. His love for these people who were once lost, dead in their sin. And because of his love for them, he's he's willing to exhaust himself for the sake of the gospel in his own life. And so when Paul says here in verse 9, for you remember, he is calling upon the believers to remember the extent, the reason, and the purpose to which he exhausted himself for the believers, which ultimately, as we see, was for the sake of the gospel. And so first, let's look at the extent of the cost. The extent of Paul's cost was to labor and toil, working night and day. This phrase, together, labor and toil, is an emphatic phrase used only by Paul in the New Testament. And these words, labor and toil, they're slightly nuanced. Labor referring to the active exertion of a strenuous activity. Toil referring to the exhausting effects of that activity. And so when you put these two words together, labor and toil, it refers to an extreme hardship and suffering which the believers would have remembered. He's saying, for you remember. This is something that they would have been able to actively recall in his ministry to them. And the nature of this labor and toil was to work night and day. The sense here to work is to work for one's own material needs. 
It's, it's for the basic necessities of life. So this would have been through some sort of a trade, the work of a, of a day laborer. And as we know, Paul was, he was a tent maker. He, he made tents. That's what he did to earn money when he needed to. But the sense here is no, it's, it's no mere side job. The extent of this work is described as night and day. Paul may have, he may have begun working long before dawn so that he could devote time to his ultimate purpose, which, as we see here, was to preach the gospel. And so in Thessalonica, this was the cost that Paul viewed as required to practically and to effectively preach the gospel there. And what's most important to understand here about the extent of the cost is that Paul endured extreme hardship by working night and day for his own material needs. And what we see here is that he didn't have to. Paul had good reason not to work, but instead he willingly and sacrificially endured this hardship. And that's where we see the reason for the cost. The reason that Paul gives for his hardship is that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now we know that many of the believers there were poor from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There was extreme poverty there in Thessalonica. However, Paul's labor and toil, it goes, it goes well beyond just uh, mere necessity or compassion. Since we also know that some of the believers there had means. There's a man there named Jason uh, who, who had means from Acts 17. We see that. So, so it goes beyond just a mere necessity to work. What we see is that he primarily wanted to be an example for the believers, especially if it would cause the gospel to go forward with effectiveness. And Paul was willing to remove any barrier that would have prevented the gospel from going forth. And in the context of chapter 2 here, Paul sets himself up against the false teachers by showing that he had no motives at all for personal material gain. He says in verse 5, if you look there, he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And here's the key in verse 6. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You see, as an apostle of Christ, Paul had the right to receive financial support. But instead, and here's the key point, we learn, what we learn from Paul's cost in this situation is that Paul gave up his right to receive even basic provision by exhausting himself working night and day. And Paul gave up this right for one overriding purpose, to proclaim the gospel of God. And we're going to look at that purpose uh, of the cost a little bit more in a moment. But the main point here is that Paul was willing to remove anything that might hinder the gospel from going forward. He was willing to sacrifice his time, his efforts. He was willing to give of himself freely, and he even gave up his rights as an apostle of Christ so that there'd be no hindrance whatsoever to the proclamation of the gospel. That there'd be no question at all to his motives. And this served as an example 
for us is an example for them then. And this example began with Christ himself. As we read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ gave up his rights as God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in order to suffer and die so that you and I might have eternal life. And Paul, in turn, imitates Christ by suffering for the sake of the gospel, no matter what the cost was, whether it was in this situation, suffering extreme hardship through labor and toil, or elsewhere, through persecution, being beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, in hunger, and in thirst, or whether the cost was simply giving up his Christian liberties, those things that may be allowed by Scripture, but that may otherwise stumble someone from receiving the gospel. And to that end, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, I do it all for the sake of of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, Paul gave up his rights as an apostle and he endured hardship all for the sake of the gospel. Paul followed Christ's example of living out a gospel-driven cost and he has given an example for us to follow as well. And that gospel-driven cost, that may look different in your life. It may even change from day to day, from situation to situation. To some extent, there's always a giving up of ourselves for the sake of others, whether that giving up of ourselves is small or whether it's it's great. You may have a biblical license to do something, but it may hinder the gospel. Your cost may be in response to someone who has hurt you, where your mercy may open up the door for the gospel. In this culture of marketing and gimmicks, it may be to persevere in sacrificially loving someone in a way that is radically different from any love that they've ever seen in their entire life. Or maybe it's in exhausting yourself to love the unlovable, the hurting, the sick, those who cannot give back to you. Whatever it might be, though, it's all for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. So the extent of the cost for Paul was to willingly and sacrificially endure suffering and hardship. And the reason for that cost was to not be a burden to the believers by giving up his rights as an apostle so that nothing would hinder him from his ultimate purpose. And that was to proclaim the gospel. This reminder of labor and toil, working night and day so as not to be a burden is all for that sake. And this, where we see here, where he says, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, this proclamation describes the sum total of Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, and really to everyone else, as you see uh, throughout Acts and throughout the letters. It's the sum total. 
of his ministry. This is what Paul's life and all of his suffering boiled down to. It all boiled down to the proclamation of the gospel. This is where the plan, the plane lands. This is where the train ends, the final destination. It's all for the proclamation of the gospel. That was his ultimate purpose for bearing whatever cost came his way. And that's why it is a gospel-driven cost. It is a cost that is driven by the good news of the gospel. I want to talk about three things from this verse, from this passage that we see about the gospel. We see that the gospel is to be proclaimed. We see that the gospel is God's. And third, we see that the gospel is good news. So first, the gospel is to be proclaimed. To proclaim, or some versions say preach, the gospel, to proclaim goes beyond merely saying something, something that you would like to say. It means to herald a message that is not your own. And it's to herald that message with complete accuracy. Herald isn't, that's a word that we don't use today much in our common language, to, to herald something. Nobody says, you know, I heralded or he heralded something. Um, it's like a foreign ambassador who is prohibited from delivering his own opinion on the matter, whatever that might be. He's only allowed to deliver what the king or what the president or the prime minister gives him to deliver. And he must do so with complete accuracy. And what the herald brings with him is the authority of the one who sent him. He brings a message, and that message is backed with the authority of the king or the ruler. And so Paul came to herald the gospel of God, not his own words or the words of men. And we see this in verse 4, if you look at at verse 4. It says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, the gospel is a message to be heralded, not a message for you to come up with or change, but a message to be understood and proclaimed. And the message that Paul heralded was the message entrusted to him by God. It is God's gospel. Meaning that the message of the gospel finds its origin and it finds its authority in God, not man. And this distinguished Paul's message from the messages of the false teachers and of the philosophers of his day. And the same is true in in the world today. All other religions and philosophies find their origin in man, but the gospel finds its origin in God. All other religions and philosophies find their hope in man. They even find their strength in man. But the gospel finds its hope and even finds its strength in God and in God alone. And if you want to be a faithful proclaimer of the gospel, you must first understand that from beginning to end, the gospel is God's gospel. He initiated it. He fulfilled it. And he ensures its eternal promises. God God initiated the gospel. 
God first promised the gospel to Adam and Eve after the fall. When he promised that he would send his seed who would crush the head of Satan. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that God unveils his gospel more and more through his promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and to all of the prophets, all pointing to Christ. You see, man did not come up with God's salvific plan. God did. Nor could man ever fulfill God's salvific plan. God fulfilled. He not only initiated the gospel, but God fulfilled the gospel by sending his own son to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and to be the only perfect, acceptable sacrifice for our sins. See, man cannot make himself acceptable before God. This requires the work of God. God not only fulfilled the gospel, but God ensures that his children will receive his future eternal promises by making his gospel effective today and by sealing us with his spirit as a guarantee of his eternal inheritance. And so God, he initiated the gospel, God fulfilled the gospel, and God ensures the gospel from beginning to end. It is God's gospel. It is centered fully on God and on him Alone, And if it is God's gospel, then it is true. And if it is God's gospel, then it holds authority. And if it is God's gospel, then it is effective as we see in Romans 1.16. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is exactly what happened to the Thessalonian believers when Paul faithfully proclaimed the gospel of God. If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, we see the effectiveness of the gospel going forth. Paul thanks God constantly, saying that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as, it, what, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You see, the faithful proclamation of the gospel was effective unto salvation for the Thessalonians, just as it was in Jerusalem, in Philippi, and just as it would be in Berea, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome, and to the ends of the earth, just as it is today, right here in our very own city, and right here in our very own homes. Brothers and sisters, it should give you great confidence that the gospel is not your own. It is God's gospel. Don't change it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't leave some of it out and pander to someone's felt needs. To do so would be to, de- to deny God's sovereign plan and power. You and I are called to faithfully proclaim the gospel because it is God's gospel, and it is the means by which God saves a lost and dying world. And we see in uh, Paul at the Areopagus, if, if you recall in Acts, where Paul faithfully proclaims the gospel to a people that were very similar to uh, uh, a context that's very similar to our context. And what happens after he proclaims the gospel to the people uh, in Athens? We see that some mocked. Some questioned, 
but others believed and were saved. It's not for us to determine what the gospel is and how it is to go forth. It's for us to remember that this is God's gospel. It's his message. And all we're called to do is to faithfully declare it. And so the gospel is God's. But third, don't ever lose sight that by definition, the gospel is good news. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's this fiery wealth preacher of the 19th century. He He goes further saying, it is the best and greatest good news known to man. And in one of his messages in Romans, Dr. Lloyd-Jones poses the question. He says this. He asks this in one of his messages. Can we say honestly at this moment that this is the greatest and the best good news that we have ever heard? I think the answer to this question is directly related to our understanding of the gospel and specifically in understanding just how much we are in need of the gospel if you give a lifeguard a fire hose, he will, he'll see no need for it other than to maybe refill the pool so someone can continue to take laps. But if you give a fire hose to a fireman running into a burning home with children inside, he knows that their lives depend on it. And in the same way, we have great need to proclaim the gospel for lives depend on it for all eternity I love this Spurgeon quote. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. Because lives depend on it. There's so much to say about the good news of the gospel, but let me just focus on a couple of key points drawn primarily from Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. First, the gospel is good news because it is the, it is the news of man's deliverance from sin. God delivered us from the penalty of sin. That is God's wrath from an eternity in hell apart from the goodness and the presence of God. In 2 Thessalonians, the second letter, chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, Paul describes God's wrath with, with, with real clarity. And he says that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all. Who have believed. This is what will come of those who do not know God and of those who do not respond to the gospel. They will suffer punishment, as we see. They will suffer punishment, eternal punishment, destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And the good news of the gospel is that God has delivered us from the penalty. Of sin. He's delivered us from this penalty. But God has also delivered us from the power of sin. We were once slave to sin, slave to its master, Satan. But through the gospel, God has made us slaves to God and slaves 
to righteousness. And God has delivered us from the effects of sin that has corrupted our minds. And he promises to completely remove sin and all of its corrupting influences when he establishes his new heavens and the new earth. See, God has delivered us from sin. But God has also delivered us. The other side of that equation is that God has delivered us for something. He's delivered us to be in fellowship with him that begins here on earth and that will be perfected and fully realized when we see him face to face in all his glory for all eternity. See, for those who don't know God, who don't obey the gospel, they will be away from God's presence and glory. But for us who do know God, who have obeyed the gospel, we will be in the presence and glory of God forever. And in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, where we are in, in verse 12, Paul very briefly but powerfully reminds the believers that God has called them into his own kingdom and glory. This is the future glory of God that every believer has to look forward to, to be in the presence and goodness of God forever and ever And we know that this eternal fellowship with God begins here today for those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. And that this fellowship with God that begins here on earth is just a foretaste of the unhindered presence and goodness of God to be revealed on the last day when Christ brings us into his eternal dwelling where there will be no more penalty of sin, no more power of sin, not even the effects of sin. And all of this is for the glory of God in the lives of his children. I just want to take a moment to consider what would happen if there was no gospel, if there was no good news to proclaim. If there was no gospel, we would still be under the penalty of sin. If there was no gospel, we would still be under the power of sin. If there was no gospel, we'd still be under the effects of sin. With no gospel, we would remain enemies of God with no hope of fellowship with God here and for all eternity. See, without the good news of the gospel, all we would have is the absolutely worst news we could ever have. But the gospel is the greatest and best good news that has ever come to man. Has it come to you in this way? If you came to church this morning bearing the penalty of your sin, repent today and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and be delivered from God's wrath and be saved for an eternity of fellowship with him. If you came in here bearing the penalty of sin, do not leave here continuing to bear the penalty of that sin. The gospel is to be received by faith. But I suspect for, for, for many of you this morning, Perhaps the gospel doesn't seem to be the greatest and best good news to you. 
Maybe your eyes have been fixed too much on yourself rather than on Christ. Maybe it's your sin that is, has clouded, that has weighed down your view of the gospel. Maybe there are trials in your, in your life that have, have also just clouded the beauty of the gospel. It can even be the good things in life that are fighting against your joy in the gospel. It could be the success of your job or the success of your children or, or ha- hobbies that you enjoy where there are things that God has given us to enjoy that have become just another headline in your life. See, the gospel is not only God's gospel, but it is a gospel to be heralded. It is a good news to be proclaimed. And the thrust of this morning's message is is not about doing more and more. It's not about condemning yourself for never doing enough to bear a bigger cost. It's about savoring and treasuring Christ and his gospel is more precious than anything else in your life as truly the greatest and best good news that you could ever share with anyone. And this is what drives the cost. And that's why it's not a condemnation-driven cost, but a gospel-driven cost. And if you're struggling with treasuring the gospel this morning as the greatest and best good news, then pray as David prayed in Psalm 51, where, where he asked God to restore to him the joy of God's salvation. That's what we do. Because so often these other things, they, they cloud the beauty of the gospel and the greatness of the gospel in our lives. And so we can come to him. We ought to come to him. And no matter where we are, and ask him to increase our view and our understanding of the gospel more and more. So the cost of Christ is not driven by what you are able to do in your own strength. It is driven by what God has already done through his gospel at work in your life. And may this be the fuel that drives whatever cost God brings your way. May this be the fuel that drives your proclamation of the best and greatest good news that a lost and dying world could ever hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the glorious, wonderful news of the gospel. And Lord, we do pray that for each of us here this morning, Lord, that the gospel would be that sweet and precious gift that drives our life, that drives our, pro- that drives our proclamation and evangelism, Lord, that as we go out into this world, bearing whatever cost that may come our way, that we may do so out of the joy of the gospel that you have given and established in our very own hearts. And may we grow in that understanding for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.